Solutions to Earth-Sized Problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Joe Jordan and intern Tommy Martin. Today on the program, how one piece of climate legislation is attracting lawmakers from both sides of the aisle. Hear about a proposal to change charge a fee for carbon and return the money to the public in the form of dividends. We'll talk with Alex Yazbek of the Citizens Climate Lobby, plus reports from climate marches in Washington, D.C. and Santa Cruz, plus science notes and phenomena. Stay tuned. Right now, we're going to start out with our typical newscast, and Tommy Martin's going to kick it off. <laughs> yeah, an inspiring story today from our friends in Britain. They just had their first ever working day without the use of coal power since the Industrial Revolution. This 24-hour period marks a huge milestone in the transfer away from carbon fuels to renewable energy, as wind and solar made huge strides all over the world. Fossil fuel use has dropped significantly in the past few years, accounting for just 9% of the UK's energy last year, down from under a quarter last year. The British government has pledged to be 100% coal-free by 2025. Britain became the first country to use coal for electricity when Thomas Edison opened the Holborn Viaduct, Viaduct Power Station in London in 1882. I remember that. <laughs> I was there, yeah. Uh, so speaking of old, <laughs> good segue. Uh, in a recent article in the journal Nature, researchers from San Diego, California, and Hot Springs, Arkansas have asserted that early humans were in North America 130,000 years ago and not 25,000 or so years ago, as previously thought. This is hotly debated. There's a lot of debate over whether the evidence they found actually shows this, but they are saying that uh, broken off pieces of mastodon bones show some sort of hominid uh, activity. It could have been Neanderthal or um, Devisonian. Uh, we don't know that because they haven't found any DNA or any other evidence, but they have found really clear, what they say are very clear, tool markings on mastodon bones found in San Diego that appear to have been broken by tools. And uh, that long ago, a wetter, warmer climate, they say, uh, would have submerged a land bridge. So how did they get here? Possibly boat. Uh, possibly there were more ice ages than we know. Still being hotly debated. And it does, um, in a way, go back to what many Native tribes are saying is that they've been here a lot longer. We just don't know. How much longer? And they're saying this isn't maybe even Homo sapiens, it's somebody else. So more to be seen. And um, I believe Joe Jordan has a story for us as well. Hi, Joe. Welcome from all the way in D.C. Yeah, hi, folks. Uh, can you hear me okay? Sure can. <laughs> Ma magic okay. of modern technology in, in progress <laughs> and science, too. <laughs> right, right, yes. Uh, hey, uh, actually, just a little follow on to that story. Uh, I have a good friend who, a colleague at Cabrillo College, where I teach occasionally. Uh, she's an anthropologist, and uh, she tells me that uh, the human race, basically, is uh, about two and a half million, well, two, two million years old. Uh, you know, that's how far we can go back and call things still remotely human. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, that puts that figure you were giving of, you know, 130,000 years for North America as opposed to 25,000. Well, two million years, that's, that's a lot. Um, and actually, there's an astronomical comparison to that. Uh, you can actually, the one thing you can see with the naked eye that is not in our Milky Way galaxy is the next galaxy over, namely the Andromeda galaxy. It's about just shy of two and a half million light years away, meaning that the light you see left that galaxy two and a half million years ago, traveling fast enough to go around the world almost eight times a second. <laughs> and so, anyway, that light left that galaxy, the light we see now left that galaxy before there were humans roaming the earth <laughs> so that's kind of an interesting perspective but back to uh the news of today <laughs> um there is uh this little story in today's washington post uh, you could call this the news of tomorrow kind of like you know disneyland <laughs> there was Frontierland and Tomorrowland, <laughs> fantasy land well anyway maybe this is fantasy land but they're talking about space mining may become realistic within a decade really <laughs> 
Well, now, I'm not particularly a fan of this idea. Uh, I, that, now, I'm not saying I oppose it. I am agnostic. Um, <laughs> there are, there are cost-benefit analyses that need to be done. And in fact, one of the more astute people that were consulted for this uh, article was a NASA asteroid expert named uh, Chodas, C-H-O-D-A-S. I uh, don't happen to have the article open to his first name. I think it's Paul Chodas. But anyway, he says, yeah, this could be promising. Uh, you know, we could actually mine, practically, minerals and water from asteroids and even the moon. Turns out there probably is a bunch of ice kind of in shady areas on the moon near the poles. And, uh, well, you know, then there are questions of why would we want to do this? And, well, the basic idea is, okay, there may well be industries in low Earth orbit manufacturing things. You might say, well, why do we want to do that? Well, there are issues of, okay, where does the pollution go? Instead of into our atmosphere, maybe it could go ultimately into the sun. <laughs> and that raises actually a very interesting fact about the sun. I'm just going to, may have said this on an earlier show, but hey, we get new listeners all the time. Believe it or not, the sun by converting mass into energy, loses five tons a second of mass that it converts into the radiant energy that makes it possible for life to thrive on the Earth. <laughs> well, anyway, so if we could m do manufacturing in space and get all the garbage, uh, to, you know, the pollution, to go into the sun, you know, it, it probably kind of could use a little fattening up after having <laughs> lost five tons a second of mass for a really long time. So anyway, um, wow. but anyway, stay tuned. Uh, that, that, you know, asteroid mining may be coming to a store near you. Soon. You know, I always think when I hear stories like that, hey, we found an Earth-like planet. I just want to say, run, run fast, because we haven't done such a good job with this one. Imagine what we do with an extra one. There is no planet B. That's one of the signs we saw. And we will be back yeah. with uh, Joe in just a, a little while after our interview uh, to talk about the climate march in Washington, D.C., because I know you're there right now. So um, hold that thought because we want to hear mm -hmm. all about it and we would like to direct people to two places as this program goes on one is our facebook page which is kind of our de facto web page so go to planet watch on facebook and you'll find our page and there are a whole bunch of photographs uh mostly from the climate march in santa cruz and i believe um i uploaded a few of them that should be just now up um from your uh, wonderful 80 photos that your wife mary took while at the march so people can gaze at those and we might put them on our feed um, but hold that thought because we're going to not only come back to a report from you, Joe, from what you saw in Washington, which I heard they encircled the White House. So we'll get back to that. But also uh, we will hear from people like Fred Keeley who were at the march in Santa Cruz. We recorded several interviews with organizers and also speakers at the march yesterday. That's coming up on Planet Watch right here on your public radio or commercial radio station, depending on where you're listening. Welcome to our listeners in Columbus, Ohio. So in the studio with me and with Tommy and Joe, of course, is in Washington, is Alex Yazbek. He is with the Citizens Climate Lobby. What is the Citizens Climate Lobby and who are you? Just give us a little background so we know from whence you speak. Um, so Citizens Climate Lobby is a group that is pushing for a carbon fee. Um, so what used to be called a carbon tax uh, has been renamed a carbon fee. And, and are there any differences between um, <laughs> Technically, there are, actually. Uh, a tax typically is a money that's collected for, from some entity and then used by the government for government purposes. And more uh, for other things, not related. Exactly. Right? So. And a fee is different in that, this, in this case, the fee would be collected and then redistributed um, to uh, households as a, in, a, in the form of a dividend. So this is now something that instead of a tax, which most people have a very negative reaction to, this is a fee, and so it's something that most people can say, oh, I, I can live with a fee and a dividend. Provide, you know, this money is not increasing the size of government. Um, it's not creating new programs. This is something I can live with. Um, you know, and, and I guess you can even take it further. You could say, well, you know, most people are opposed to taxes for, say, education, but are very happy to invest in education. So. It's all about the words you use, how you frame the argument. Right. Um, so, so just to get back to that oh, fee yeah. versus tax thing, um, the obvious question I, I come up with is if 
you are collecting money from, say, a gasoline at the gas pump in a fee, and people are getting that same amount back. Um, why do it? Why? What's the incentivizing process here? Tell um, us about how it works. Yeah. So, so I'm. Uh, I, I should. I should admit that I'm a very, a relatively new member to Citizens Climate Lobby. Uh, so, I, you know, back in 1997, I was in high school, read an article on climate change, and it blew my mind. I, I had never really thought about all this carbon we were digging up and putting in the atmosphere. So, uh, you know, that, that changed my life. I mean, I started getting into solar energy. I, in college, I bought a diesel car and started making my own biodiesel because you just could not buy it. You had to go collect vegetable oil and cook it up and turn it into biodiesel. Um, you know, I, I changed my diet. I stopped eating meat. I became a vegan. You know, all these things that I thought, I have to do something because, you know, all this carbon is going in the air. And it's taken me 20 years to realize I, all those things I did, on a personal level, they were great, but they haven't really changed the big picture. They so, do have a multiplier effect if everyone does it. Absolutely. So it but takes the, a while. But the thing is, most people are so wrapped up in, in working and, and worrying about their debt and trying to you know, just just make it through the day that to also then say, oh, by the way, you, sh you should be changing your lifestyle to address what's going on. And yes, that makes absolutely logical sense. But I, I don't really think human beings are necessarily logical creatures. So, <laughs> so anyway, so so back to you know, back in 1997, there were th about 365 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and uh, now we're around 405. 410, depending on how the numbers are being processed. So this is the first time that I've actually felt hopeful about climate change. And the reason is because this proposal from Citizens Climate Lobby is the most impactful solution to climate change that we know of. Um, so it's like, wow, there's actually something we can do that, that may actually work. And to sort of make it even more amazing, it has bipartisan support. It, it's got this broad base of support from conservatives and everybody, um, which, is, which to me is sort of like, oh, finally, there's something that is not, you know, oh, yeah, liberals want this, and oh, conservatives want this. It's suddenly this, this, this thing that a lot of people are getting behind. And, and, and let's, if you could walk us to how does it work? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. so how does it work? Um, I guess as I explain this, just keep in mind this is a very impactful solution because... The details, the first time I heard them, I was kind of like, oh, this is kind of, I'm not sure if I'm really getting it, but it took me a little bit of time to really get it. So the, the, the details are, you place a fee on carbon. So that means at the port, at the well, at the mine, you put a fee on carbon. And that means that for every ton of coal that this mining company digs up, they then have to pay $15 per ton. And that money is collected. And then all that money is then given back to households on a monthly basis. So that's the dividend aspect of this plan. How much would the average person get if they were to tax all the current carbon being hauled out so, of the ground? And, and does that include fracking too? And, uh, absolutely. So it's yeah. any carbon source, whether it's uh, natural gas, oil, coal. And, and it's also, you know, even if you're importing that, if you're importing natural gas, that fee would be placed on it as well. So at, the, if, at $15 per ton... Um, each household would get about $40 per month. And um, Citizens Climate Lobby has very carefully structured the proposal to really have very broad appeal. So to make sure that it has a huge impact on the climate, the fee would actually rise every year. So it would start at $15 per ton and go up $10 per ton every single year. And so what that means is that you would get more and more money back. So uh, in the first year, you would get $40 a month. Uh, the third year, you would get $100 per month. And by the 10th year, you'd be getting about $300 per month. And now this dividend part is actually what really makes the whole thing work. Because uh, raising the, putting a fee on carbon would have a negative impact on people who, who, are, in a, you know, who are not as wealthy. They, they w their, their energy costs are going to go up. They are going to have to pay more at the pump. They are going to have to pay more in their monthly utility bill. But the, the dividend is what offsets that. And in fact, the dividend is, is great enough that it would more than offset it, assuming that the, the fees are just simply passed on to the consumer. Hmm. So, so that's the, the thing that makes it really, makes the whole concept work. Um, so to give an example of somewhere where it didn't necessarily work so well was in Australia. They, uh, 
they put in a carbon fee and tax break program, I guess would be the best description of it. And after about three years, I, I may have that slightly wrong, uh, it, was, it was repealed. Um, it didn't help that they had Tony Abbott as president or prime minister. Um, and so, the, at least the way I view it is, um, had they had a dividend, they would have had the public support behind it. Because that's the thing that I think there was a lot of public opposition saying, hey, I'm paying more at the pump and I'm not getting anything back and mm -hmm. this is not fair. Yeah. So, that, so that dividend, at first it sounds like, well, why not just put a tax on carbon and then use that money to invest in renewable energy? Like that, that seems like a really great solution, but that's not the solution that's going to get that broad base of support. There is some psychology studies that say once you give someone something, they are much more loath to give it back once they have it. Um, in other words, if you give someone a $10 bill and say there's a 50-50 chance you'll get a $20 bill, if you give me back that... Ten dollars. Right, they will not give it up, no matter how high you make the odds, yes. even if it's ninety percent, because there's a perception issue. It's a cognitive thing that once we have that forty dollars a month, we get very used to it. I think people in Alaska get a, a uh, oil exactly. dividend, don't yeah. they? Yeah, and I, and I imagine if you try to repeal that program or rescind it, you would get immense opposition to that. Yeah. And so I think you know, citizens' climate lobbyists really try to look at every single aspect and how do we really make a difference with a single piece of legislation. If you just joined uh, us at Planet Watch, we're talking with Alex Yazbek. He's with the Citizens Climate Lobby, a nonpartisan group that is working to put a fee on carbon. And uh, Tommy, maybe you have a question for Alex. Yeah, I was wondering what the incentive like, or how the incentive could work towards companies maybe stopping to produce so much carbon. Um, it's a Good question, and this is, this is again, uh, part of the broad appeal that this plan has, and that is that it, it allows the market to, to, um, to adjust to the increased cost in carbon. Mm -hmm. So you're, a, you're an energy company, and you're considering a gas-powered plant in California, and suddenly gas is more expensive. Suddenly, a solar farm is a more viable solution. Because the cost of solar hasn't gone up, but the cost of gas has. Okay. And so it, it's essentially leveling the play, playing field for, for renewables and for alternative options. Right now, we subsidize a lot of fossil fuel companies um, with tax breaks. Uh, would that go away under this? Um, it's a good question. I am not entirely sure how that would work. Uh, so keep in mind that this is just a proposed concept that we are trying to get uh, federal law in place that would mirror this this um this concept yeah. um so there you know there are a lot of republicans who um I, I guess i should back up a little bit and mention that citizens climate lobby has uh worked to get the house climate caucus in place um and so this caucus is um a bipartisan caucus and uh you know so that means if you're a democrat and you want to join you have to find a republican friend to join with you so there are some extremely conservative re Republicans who have joined this, 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 uh, this caucus. Um, Daryl Issa is an example of somebody who I would never have ever guessed would join something like this. And he, he's joined, and they all kind of on the same page, but there are those differences. So, for example, he's saying, or not particularly Daryl Issa, but some of them are saying, oh, you know, we could alter the plan slightly. It doesn't, you know, we, we would... If we put this in place, we would then repeal the clean energy plan. Or we would then, you know, whereas Democrats are saying, we want carbon fee and dividend and we want more regulations on power plants. So there are those differences in what each person brings to the table. And uh, message-wise, is it possible for Republicans who have come out and flat out said they don't personally believe the science of climate change and still support a proposal like this? Um, I don't see why not. Uh, I've never actually thought about that. It's sort um, of a logical conundrum. It, it, why would you put a fee on it if you um, didn't believe it was causing any trouble? Um, not to keep focusing on Daryl Issa, but I think his constituents are really just snapping at his heels saying, this is ridiculous, we're in coastal regions, we're, going, we're feeling the effects of climate change right now. We don't really care what you say publicly about it, but you need to do something about it mm -hmm. or we're going to find somebody else. This so does I, cross the aisle. I mean, I don't think people wake up and say, um, 
hi, I'm a Republican, I want polluted air, and I want right, exactly. the sea to rise and eat my home. I mean, most people don't want that to happen. If you tell them why, maybe there's disagreement about how why it's happening, but nobody would say they're in favor of these disastrous weather events and uh, rising seas, which seem to be irrefutable if, unless you're really working to right. deny them. And I think that's something that, that just being part of Citizens Climate Lobby has helped me is, um, you know, on a personal level, I'm consider myself very far to the left but this has helped me sort of realize I'm not that different to other people they're not that different to me we all basically want the same things I mean there's that maybe that 10 20 percent of things we disagree on but they're really not that important compared to the things like I want a planet I can live on I want my kids to breathe clean air I want them to have clean water to drink I mean I think that's really what this group has helped me understand is that um you know, we're all in this together, and it's we need to stop putting ourselves in these different categories. Good point. Uh, somebody had a sign at the march, you know, that the planet is not a partisan creature. <laughs> <laughs> the planet is is uh, home to all of us, everyone, last one of us, whether you have any party affiliation whatsoever. You wake up, you probably, you know, pour a glass of water at some point in your day, and that water doesn't have a partisan leaning either. It's just water. <laughs> and we hope it's clean to drink. And how it got clean is where the debate sometimes comes in, and that's that's often what you see uh, run into partisan issues. Uh, we uh, have Joe Jordan online from Washington, D.C., and Joe, did you want to chime in here? Yeah, I've been tracking your discussion there and uh, wanted to uh, amplify on uh, Alex. You're doing a great job. All of you are, and appreciate it. This is a message that needs to get out. And uh, first thing to mention is that um, the CCL, Citizens Climate Lobby, they have a national... A conference call, international conference call that all the local chapters all over the place can get in on uh, the second Saturday morning of every month. So, for instance, in Santa Cruz, we have a local chapter. Just, um, <laughs> well, get a hold of us and we'll put you in touch with how that happens. But basically, they meet from about 9.45 till noon and they always have a significant guest who is on a phone call and then they have discussion and they organize actions, you know, meetings with legislators and so on. It's pretty exciting and really good stuff. The organization is growing by leaps and bounds because they're becoming a real force. Uh, on the political horizon to making a difference on all this. I just wanted to answer or uh, sort of uh, maybe even counter a couple of things that were said. Uh, the subsidies question, um, you know, in the ideal world, which we're striving for, there won't be any subsidies for anything, solar, wind, coal, oil. Just have a free market. Have a free market and see who wins. If it were really a free market, solar and wind would have won a long time ago. <laughs> and at this point especially, they're cheaper than everything else. And they're also cleaner and all these other great things. They don't start wars and so on, you know. Um, and as far as the fee versus tax, you know, there is this sort of tiptoeing around. A lot of people might say, well, you're calling it a fee, but come on, it's really a tax. Well, here's the difference. With a tax... The government takes your money and decides what to do with it. <laughs> with the fee thing, hey, you pay more for something that's bad, but you get all the, you get a whole bunch of money back. You get a fixed amount of money back, you know, per household every every month. And uh, the oil companies and the coal companies are the ones who actually pay. But of course, they pay. They they pass that cost on to you. So as Alex alluded to, yeah, your oil is going to be more expensive at the pump, but you're going to have this monthly dividend to help you deal with it. And as far as the incentives for going cleaner, well, the way that works is um, if people pay more for stuff they're getting at the pump or, you know, coal for their power plants or fireplaces or whatever, you know, hey, it's going to be a lot, it's going to make a lot more economic sense to go solar or wind. So that's why even Republicans, even so-called conservatives, can get behind this, and they are getting behind it because it's a revenue based, uh, sorry, revenue neutral, market based, you know, free market based uh, mechanism where, you know, money, if you want to get a whole lot of people to do something, money is actually the ultimate dictator. If you make it really expensive to do bad stuff and relatively cheap to do good stuff, well, guess what people are going to do without a dictator, without any kind of command and control regulations? You know, money will, will, talk. <laughs> so that's what's really great about this. And finally, let's see, Canada, British Columbia in Canada has been doing this very successfully. It's kind of an unsung hero sort of thing. Unfortunately, I think recently they 
in fact, we sort of had a news story we might run maybe next week, say, uh, they have um, backpedaled on that just politically for whatever reasons. They've gone back a little bit towards the dinosaur dark ages, and they have uh, scaled back their uh, carbon fee and dividend in British Columbia. But it was working beautifully. I, I don't know exactly what the story is and what's gone wrong up there. But anyway, okay, let's do thank it right you for here. that. Um, we're going to get a yeah, short yeah. break, and we'll be right back. Talk more with Alex Yazbek from the Citizens Climate Lobby right after this short break. for another edition. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Tommy Martin and Joe Jordan. We're talking about the Citizens Climate Lobby with Alex Yazbek. He is a new member who felt like he really needed to do something big, and he says this could be very big. The lobby part of Citizens Climate Lobby is what I wanted to ask you about next. Um, sure. Uh, so, obviously, that's one-third of the name. So, um, uh, we do things like we organize... Um, constituent comment forms. So if you came by our table at Earth Day or yesterday at the Climate March, you would have had the opportunity to fill out a constituent comment form. And then we hand collect those, we make copies of them, and we give them to your representatives. So that would be Jimmy Panetta if you're in Santa Cruz. Um, and we also, uh, those copies, we then send one copy to um, the, uh, each of the, our state senators. So your single constituent comment form would go to three different uh, members of Congress. Uh, and then we do things like we organize meetings with, with Jimmy Panetta. So we uh, will go to his office and meet with his aide, and we will discuss what Citizens Climate Lobby is proposing. We will encourage him to join the, the House caucus on the Climate Caucus in the House. And um, those experiences are, are incredible because we will meet with the aide and and suddenly we will learn something about Jimmy Panetta that we never knew. For example, that he is a big fan of, of a carbon tax. Um, and, and so this carbon fee and dividend concept, he might have some, some issues with it. And so we can then say, well, this is why we think a carbon fee and dividend program will be more powerful than a carbon tax program. Um, and so, so there's, there's a very... Um, um, it's a very powerful sort of experience, just seeing how these things work. And then in addition to that, we then do a lot of letter writing campaigns. So we write letters to the editor. We try to get editorials and papers. Um, basically, any way that we can educate people about what a carbon fee and dividend is, why it's such a powerful solution to climate change, and why it's you know, a viable solution in that it may actually become law. 
Yeah. So this is a national organization. People in Washington run this organization with um, chapters in different states. Yes, I believe there are 300 chapters. Um, wow. I may be wrong on that. Um, there's international chapters as well. So there's chapters all over the world. Hmm. Um, the or- organization is actually based in California. I believe it was started in San Diego. Uh, but we have uh, two uh, lobbyists now in, in Washington, D.C., and that's all funded through member donations. So it's it's kind of like the, the, the concept is, is, is about empowering uh, citizens to really make a difference in legislation. Um, and yes. we found during the near repeal of the ACA that got backed off of that there was a huge um, bipartisan outcry uh, absolutely, that yeah. really did make them walk it back. And if the number of people who marched all did something like what you're talking about, the uh, representatives would be hearing a lot more sure. about this issue. And I don't know how much you know they're hearing. They're hearing about a lot of things right now because so many things are under attack and right. changing. But I don't know if there's any data on how many calls, you know, on a given week are about climate change. Yeah, I, I don't know. But um, another way to think about it is, you know, the oil industry has a lobby in, in D.C. Um, one or two. One or two. You know, and the, and the natural gas industry has a, a lobby and the coal industry has a lobby. So the citizens' climate lobby is really, we're here to lobby for the climate. And so that has to be a voluntary sort of thing because the climate obviously doesn't have a bank account to pay a bunch of lobbyists. The planet doesn't have its own lobbyists. Right. If you'd like to reach us and uh, chime in on the conversation, we have an email, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. That's radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. We have time for just one more question. So um, anybody want to chime in on the last question for Alex before we go to the short report we have from the Climate March uh, yeah, I got, I got something for you. I guess we can make a question out of it, but uh, this may be the world premiere of this possible good way of selling this concept. Uh, some of you older folks like us uh, may remember back in the days of George McGovern, the great old concept of a guaranteed minimum income. And that's an idea whose time has come and gone and is back and really should be happening there there's actually a whole country that is now going to do an experiment on this as a lot of people say oh let's make people lazy they'll just take the government's money and slack off but i i beg to differ i think that we will prove that wrong we will show that it will help solve a whole lot of problems well anyway the relationship between that and ccl's thing with the carbon fee and dividend is it's basically a guaranteed monthly income every household gets a bunch of money every month and then you have your choice to piss away as much or as little of it or as yeah as much or little of it as you want every month depending on how green you are if you're green you don't get penalized uh, if you're dirty and use a lot of carbon you pay a lot and you lose that money but you get a bunch of money every month uh, what's not to like about that and what's the <laughs> question <people> say, <laughs> joe what's the, well, question, the question okay else? the question <laughs> the question is how are we going to pay for it uh-huh. <laughs> and we've i think already talked about that you know the oil industry the coal industry pays for it that's the and, idea uh, so that's, yeah so that's a really good um ending well, question and we we just how have do you one. like that i guess i want to say how do you like <laughs> that take on it <laughs> that framing um I, I like it, Joe. I, I do want to add, um, I'm just looking at my, my notes I scribbled down right before I came here. Um, my background is engineering, and so I really like to see numbers. I like to sort of, you know, I, I, I hear a lot of things like, oh, we should ban drinking straws, or we should, you know, everybody has something that they think should be done. Um, but for me, it really comes down to, to what are the numbers, what is the impact, why is this the, the best solution we know of. And uh, just for, the, for people who are curious, um, the, if a carbon fee and dividend program were put in place right now, within 20 years, our CO2 emissions levels would be half of what they were in 1990. And so that's a pretty phenomenal statistic to me that I, I, I'm just amazed that, you know, all you have to do to really fix climate change, or the biggest thing you can do to fix climate change is just put a, put a price on carbon and within 20 years, we will, we will be at half the CO2 emissions we were in 1990. So just in closing, what's a website where people could get more information about the Citizens Climate Lobby? And with um, Alex Yazbek here is my guest. Yeah, so it would be uh, www.citizensclimatelobby.org.
Great. Well, thank you so much for being yeah, our guest pleasure. here on Planet Watch. We look forward to more conversations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here. And now we are going to listen to a short report uh, that I did when I was out at the Climate March yesterday in Santa Cruz. And then we'll hear from Joe Jordan, who was at the similar big father march or sister or mother march, I should <laughs> say, uh, in Washington, D.C. And we'll be right back with that in just a minute. momentarily yes i'm just getting it all queued up because uh <laughs> you know it's always when you want it to play that it doesn't play it's not you it's me it's really me i'm just trying to find the actual no it's it was right there but um i just have to queue it up so um we'll find it in just a minute there it is not to worry there we go. Why are you here today? <laughs> I'm here today because I want my children to have a world even better than, one, than the one that I've grown up in. That's a good reason. Um, Santa Cruz is probably a place where a lot of people agree we should do something about climate change. How are you feeling just after being here right now, so far? I feel great, and I've noticed that the marches that I've been to since Trump was inaugurated have just been the most positive, uplifting, and even enjoyable. You come out here because you feel like you have to do something, but you come out here and you wind up feeling like this is, it's just good to be surrounded by people who support the, the things that you think are the most important. And that's how I feel. So why are you marching today? Well, for our future, particularly for those of my children. Uh, the uh, environmental crisis particularly uh, regarding climate change, is the number one issue in terms of, uh, the, of importance. And our politicians are not uh, recognizing that. And we, we need to have pressure. But to, to do that, we both need to um, feel that sense of solidarity and commitment and to um, feel the energy and inspiration that comes from gatherings like this. And so I, I see this as uh, an opportunity to re-energize and go out and do the work we need to do. Holiday, why are you here marching today? Um, I'm marching because we all live on this world together and um, climate change affects absolutely everyone and it's a problem that can absolutely be solved um, as long as people stand up and there's some political will. What, what can we do uh, as an individual to move this problem which seems so big? There's a lot of small things individuals can do, but actually I think this is one of the biggest things that we can do is get out and push our leaders and push our movements because there need to be really big solutions as well. And it can't just be go with slightly cleaner fuels or natural gas because the solutions are already completely there to go completely and totally clean energy. The plans are there, the technologies are there. So I'm here talking to Fred Keeley at, right before the climate march in Santa Cruz, which is a sister march to the one in DC happening right now. Uh, what do you think the importance is of marches like this around the country right now? The importance around the country is that it continues to show that in this democracy, people's voices are in fact going to be heard. There is not some widespread consensus in the United States to deny climate change, to treat people in an unjust and unjust way. That is not the United States of America, and we are going to continue to remind. Now, the important thing about for our community is within the last 72 hours, the President of the United States has taken steps to undo 40 years of pro-environmental work in our community. Number one, he issued an executive order telling the Interior Department to take an inventory of all the national monuments and decide which ones he's going to try to unwind. We have the nation's newest national monument, the Chitoni Coast Dairies National Monument on the North Coast, and we will fight tooth and nail to keep that in place. Secondly, 24 hours ago, he issued an order saying that the Interior Department will inventory all the federal lands offshore around the United States to find out which ones are the best for oil and gas leasing. We went through that fight 40 years ago in this community and fought it for two decades. And then Congressman Panetta, together with Congressman Farr, were able to get protection in the form of the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. 
We as a community are under direct threat now. The president has focused in on two of the most important protections we have put in place in decades, National Monument and National Marine Sanctuary. The president doesn't see those as sanctuaries and monuments. He sees everything as a potential opportunity for oil and gas drilling. We simply will not, absolutely will not allow that to happen. We didn't let the, Re the Reagan administration do it. We didn't let the Bush administration do it. We worked effectively in Congress to block that. We worked effectively in organizing the entire Central Coast of California to block that. And we will do that again. Uh, this community is not going backwards. If what his idea of make America great again, if the again part means we're going to go back to that kind of thing, he is dead wrong about that in the central coast of California. Can he do those things? What's standing between him besides our activism and constant barrage of phone calls and letters? On the issue of the oil and gas leasing, he has uh, rather significant powers in that regard. Uh, the National Marine Sanctuary should be our protection against that. That should be our preventative uh, law that, that keeps this from happening in our community. But there is absolutely no assurance of that. There's no guarantee. Secondly, on the National Monument up at Chitoni Coast Dairies, we believe that the president has the ability to establish national monuments under the Antiquities Act without Congress, but that he needs Congress to unwind it. Uh, we believe that there are many other uh, places in the United States that they will have as higher priorities for unwinding a national monument, but that's not comfort uh, that other people are going to get uh, uh, savage in terms of their natural resources. But uh, as long as the door is open, and that's what the president has done, he has opened the door to oil and gas leasing, opened the door to reversing national monument designations, uh, we cannot assume uh, wishful thinking and happy unicorns or whatever that it's all going to work out. This is just like the fight that we had in the 70s, 80s, early 90s, and that is we have to fight this every way politically, using the judiciary, using every tool at our disposal. And this community is very darn good at that. Well, here we go again. Here we go again. <laughs> Thank you, Fred. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, you're one of the March volunteers and with Indivisible. How do you think this is all going and why do you think it's important to do, spend all this time on your own doing this? Well, it seems to be going really well. There's a lot of people marching along in a long, thin line. And... Uh, I'm just glad to be here and help. Why do you think it's important for places like Santa Cruz, where a lot of people are really, really environmentally motivated, to get out anyway and show? Why is it important anyway to, to preach to the choir? Well, we got to stay revved up. We got to stay revved up because we got to make change. We just heard some news from Fred Keeley that they may open up uh, oil drilling off our coast or try to. That seems like a pretty big deal. That's a huge deal. I mean, we, we have a uh, sanctuary here, but I guess if they really want to override that, they can, and we've got to stop it again and again. It kind of puts them on the wrong side of history, though, because those, those sanctuaries are very, very popular along both sides of the aisle, aren't they? Well, they are, and uh, typically people don't want it in their backyard. And, you know, the other thing is, do we really need this? Not really. Thank you. <laughs> Anything you wanted to add? <laughs> uh, we need a carbon tax is what we need. We need a market solution to, um, to regulating carbon and providing incentives for uh, other types of uh, energy. That was Chuck Stein, married to Linda Marin, who is part of the Citizens Climate Lobby. And uh, that was a pretty big march. I'm, I think it was about equal counting. Uh, around 4,000 people were estimated to have been there. Joe Jordan was at a much larger march over the weekend yesterday. And Joe's with us by the telephone from the region of Washington, D.C. Joe, can you tell us what you saw and heard at the climate march uh, yesterday? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks a lot for that excellent uh Vox Pop, you know, voice of the public. I guess that's what that means. Rachel and Tommy and others uh, rousing uh, talks by several people. I recognized the voices of a lot of friends there. Um, and, uh, well, before I go on, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to come right out here and maybe get a little political. None of this matters to me 
unless we can take back Congress in 2018. That's two years from now, and we've got to just focus everything on getting people in there who know and care about science and nature. So, okay, that's a starting point. That would be a starting point. <laughs> take back Congress uh, for the people who actually are right about things. Uh, so, okay, Washington, D.C., it was hot as hell. It was, uh, you know, they were talking about record temperatures and humidities. I guess they did tie a record that was set, you know, more than a quarter of a century ago. But uh, it wasn't as bad as I thought. I guess I'm still a desert rat at heart. Of course, it was not just hot. It was humid. <laughs> and uh, the march had a, mm, close to a quarter of a million people. I think the official estimates so far were 200,000. Last week, the science march in the rain, uh, I said 60,000. The official estimate has gone up to about 100,000. Uh, and by the way, speaking of Congress, I have to say, uh, just a throwback to last week, uh, I didn't quite get to say this before we had to suddenly finish the show. Uh, one of my heroes was there last week, a congressperson who knows something about science. Holt is a physicist, and he was one of the speakers last week. They had a whole bunch of speakers this week, uh, and uh, but the march itself, fantastic signs. Um, and, you know, we went all the way down from the uh, Capitol to the uh, Washington Monument grounds. Uh, extremely creative stuff. Uh, let me just tell you some of my favorite signs that were new, different from the ones I had seen last week. Um, well, there were a lot of them saying, no planet B. We had seen that before, I guess. Mother Earth hasn't shown you nasty yet. <laughs> that refers to the probably horrible global warming that is baked in and is definitely on the way, and we're just going to have to deal with it. Uh, let's see, what other one? But yeah, it's also planet. a reference to the word uh, nasty woman that was called to right. uh, another exactly. candidate in the presidential race that we... Well, name right. at the moment who didn't happen to win the electoral vote. Um, so, yeah. so what? So you have an estimate of the crowd. Was there any difference in the speakers in terms of the tone, the urgency? You know, we are talking about two days before this march. Um, the EPA took down the part of the EPA's website that mentioned climate change. It's now mothballed. You can still get to it, but it says this page is under construction. It's a little Orwellian that all the science that was there is gone. So, what was the tone from the speakers from the podium did you get close enough to hear the speakers and who was well speaking? yeah yeah it was uh you know actually it was a much smaller crowd on the washington monument grounds than last week in the in the five hours of rain uh, and i think that's because this time they did the march first and then the rally <laughs> we did it the other way around last week and by the time that march was over people were fried and so you know, there were still a lot of people out there but nothing compared to last week and uh, anyway what i heard i i uh, you know it was very upbeat you know people were really uh, urging people to get involved. And, uh, you know, but I have to say the highlight for me really was afterwards we went with some good friends from Santa Cruz, uh, real heroes who we'll have on this show sometime soon. They have the first ever uh, straw bale home in the village of Capitola, and they give tours of it like every month, and they're environmental educators at De Anza College and so on. Anyway, we got together with them, and we went to an evening event that had women indigenous leaders talking about combating all this, you know, nonsense that the government's trying to cram down our throats. And, man, these people are impressive, including a young black gal, 18 years old, who is one of the people in the Our Children's Trust, where, I don't know, 20-some-odd people are suing the federal government for taking away their rights to, you know, it's like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but, you know, a healthy environment. <laughs> and uh, they got standing. They are going to have their day in court later uh, this month or next month, I think. And, boy, was that gal really inspiring. <laughs> and she was just one of, like, ten speakers they had there. Uh, it was an organization called We Can, which is like Women for Environment and Climate Action Network or some, something like that. You should check that out. Uh, another little sign here, by the way. Uh, the universe is made up of uh, protons, neutrons, electrons, and morons. <laughs> that one appeared a few places. I think we should uh, have uh, like a gallery of all these signs in the in the museum, so that after we solve climate change, we can look back and laugh. You know that, that yeah. this was all like a big joke, and we kind of tried to make it light. But it was. I think the reason people make jokes about this issue is 
the it's the only response you can really do to something that's super scary if you think about it too hard. So there's got to be sort of yeah. a level of irony if you're going to go talk about it at all. And I think I appreciated that. I also appreciated what you just said um, because at the Santa Cruz March, there was a Lakota elder who gave a prayer and it was probably the most moving thing I've heard. You know, he said, mm. we um, are walking on the skin of Mother Earth every day we walk and we constantly pray and and talk to Mother Earth and that's our God. And so it put the whole march in a different context. He invited all the women and children to be in the front to symbolize the future and who's most vulnerable in all of this. So uh, the women uh, fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline, if you ever remember seeing a moment of video where they were facing off saying, we're trying to protect our water. It gets to a whole different conversation when when it gets down to life and um, not politics. It's really a whole different conversation. Yeah, you know, I think we only have, what, three minutes left. i got to get one thing in here, which is sort of in a different category. I hope somebody taped that, that you were talking about. And we had a Lakota person here talking also. But this is something completely different now. But it's time. You can now see the planet Venus in the broad daylight at midday. <laughs> it's at the peak of its brightness uh, in the, its orientation to the sun and the earth. And if at around 11 o'clock you just put your arm stretched out with your hand outstretched, Put the, the sun at your thumb and over to the right of the sun, two hand widths at arm's length, you will see Venus on a clear day, like the kind of days you have in Santa Cruz. Well, I even saw this in the Washington, D.C. suburbs a couple days ago, so that's amazing. So for the next couple of weeks, you'll be able to see Venus in the broad daylight. If you want help on that, well, hey, I'll be back in Santa Cruz late tomorrow evening, and I can show you. But anyway. Great, so, and that's uh, a perfect, an the sky. perfect segue, actually, to um, talking about our next guest, which we're having on oh, yeah. next week, who is a Mars scientist that you know from NASA. She is going to be talking about her work studying the atmosphere of Mars and how it fell apart and why Mars has no, maybe no water anymore, or very little water, very little atmosphere. So an atmospheric scientist who studies Mars will be here um, and she'll be telling us all about her work. So that's exciting and that was a perfect segue. You want to say anything more about her? Uh, Well, her name is Carol Stoker. She's what we would call a planetary scientist. She's been to Antarctica. She has dealt with rovers that are uh, diving and navigating under the uh, ice in Antarctica, looking for exotic life forms, which are found down there under the Antarctic ice. (laughs) And uh, she's... uh, She's got incredible stories from all over the world studying kind of the extremes of life. And uh, I actually worked with her a long time ago on the very first rover, not the ones that are up there now, but the very first rover that we landed on Mars way back in 1999. I think it was called, I forget what it was called. Uh, But anyway, we were looking for signs of life in broken rocks up there by uh, careful analysis of the spectral signature of the various rocks and things. She can tell us all these stories of, and you know, going to all kinds of Mars analogs all over the world. And, you know, it's, uh, it's related to the stuff we're facing here. Mars' atmosphere, very thin, but it is actually mostly carbon dioxide, which, you know, is a greenhouse gas. Uh, but anyway, we can... Anyway. <laughs> that may make you wonder. More later. Thank you, Joe yeah, Jordan yeah. from Washington, D.C. And keep your eye on the sky. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Tommy Martin and Joe Jordan. This is Planet Watch. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.